This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. <laughs> it is said that God is love, and in one sense, This may be so, but to say that God is love is to say that love is God, and this is not so. The two are not equal, or the same, or interchangeable. Better to say, God is, and also, love is. But what is love? And what does love have to do with God, if God is? We might begin by saying what love is not. Love is not an activity. Love is not something we do. Love is not an action. In essence, love is not a verb, nor is it a choice. Love, simply, is the recognition of our shared being. Love is the dissolution of the sense of separation between I and other. The crumbling of the wall that says, I am me, you are you, and the world is made of other stuff. Love is the realization of the source of all that is prior to all, gives rise to all, is in harmony with all. Words become inadequate here, unless they are the words of poets. And so what has love to do with God, then? We might say that if God is, and is the source of all, and all arises from God and is within God, then because of this, love is known. We might also say, love is, and therefore... God is. Valeria Telles interviews Michael McVeigh, a psychologist, certified yoga teacher, coach, counselor, and speaker. Michael McVeigh's approach to spirituality, psychotherapy, and the healing relationship was shaped by a variety of professional and personal experiences. As a GM with Fortune 500 big box retail companies, he coached and counseled individuals and teams for improved performance for over 20 years. As an English teacher, living and working overseas, he traveled extensively, broadening his awareness of and appreciation of other cultures and ways of life. His spiritual journey began at a young age and led him to study theology at Bright Divinity School, then around the globe to Eastern thought. He underwent intensive training in self-inquiry meditation and yoga, and took a deep dive into Advaita Vedanta, non-duality. Ultimately, he discovered the profound peace of a still mind. He now works to help others do the same. Michael holds an MS in marriage and family therapy, and will complete an MA in psychology in the coming year. He has a BA in psychology and is a certified yoga teacher. Meet Michael at michaeldmcveigh.com Meet Michael at Michael. 
Meet Michael at michaeldmcveigh.com and discoveringnonduality.com. Here is the interview with Michael McVeigh. In your own words, who is Michael McVeigh? Oh, my gosh, that is a work in progress. Um, You know, it's been a process of discovery um, for many years. Um, Who I thought I was when I was younger is not who I realized that I actually was as I, you know, matured. And um, who I am now is, is, uh, like I said, still still a work in progress. But... um, I, I like the direction that I that I have <laughs> I found myself heading in, and um, you know it's one of growth and one of openness and learning and improvement, and uh, yeah. So that, I mean, uh, in, in a nutshell, <laughs> that would be uh, who I am. <laughs> if life had one purpose, one purpose only, what would that be, from your perspective? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I'm, you know, we're all seeking for something. Um, most of us are, are seeking some form of happiness, and, and we're seeking it um, a lot of times in maybe a career or, uh, you know, another person or, you know, a nice house or material possessions. And I think what, what we find as we as we try to find those things that, that cause us or that lead us to happiness is a lot of times that the happiness that, that it brings is temporary and that the happiness is not really in those things like the career or, you know, the material possessions or other people, even those things are what kind of allow us to drop that sense of longing temporarily. And when that sense of longing and that sense desire, that sense of desire for something more and something better um, it falls away, then then we find happiness. And I think really what we're what we're all looking for is you know who we are and what we are and why we're here. And, and from my perspective, that is all about you know understanding what we are as people, where we come from, spiritually, soulfully, and ultimately discovering you know the oneness of 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 everything you know uh the the connection that we all have to each other that is that is very literal and and not metaphorical you know for me it was a spiritual journey um a longing you know i i found that the things that i was searching for didn't fulfill me whether it was um creative work or or music or literature none of those things fulfilled me and it became a search for spiritual things for god and i think that that is the purpose that we're all here for we don't all we don't all get to that point where we realize that but my interest is in helping folks get to that point um because in my opinion and in my experience that's where real fulfillment and real happiness comes from it sounds to me when you talk about the idea of spiritual seeking and God and abstract things, that sounds more like desires of the heart, not seeking anymore. Yeah, I've been thinking about that lately. Is that something that resonates with you? It, it, it is. Um, I think it's the same thing. I think it's, you know, when you say desires of the heart, I'm not quite sure what what you mean by that. So may I ask you how, how you would define desires of the heart? What comes to me is like in let's say if I can make it this very practical, 
I live in a house now that is far away from the beach, about 15 minutes, not that far. <laughs> but I would love to be closer. So there's something about the body that seeks to almost like merge back with nature and be almost not just part of it, almost in it. So that to me is not just a material thing, although I know that's much more expensive and, and not as practical to live by the beach. But there's something about the body and its energies that it seeks that and wants that. The thoughts often arise. I have been thinking about this idea of seeking that for me has stopped the seeking coming from the mind, as you described, always trying to be fulfilled and get somewhere to a destination of happiness and stay there. That has dissolved. So now it's more like doing what I do now, talking to you about these things. It's warm. It's a very different sensation when I think about having conversations about money or about the ideas of success, fame, and all that power. So this fulfills the heart. It's, it opens the heart and being in nature. So mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I... Um, no, I really like what you said about, you know, being connected to nature, because I think that most of us in modern society are very disconnected uh, from nature. You know, I was uh, I was thinking earlier about how we 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 put on we put socks over our feet, we put shoes over our socks and then we go mm -hmm. out and walk on yeah. concrete. <laughs> and and how much more disconnected from nature can you be than all those different layers of artificial creation between ourselves and the world that we came from? You know, we we all do arise from dust as the old saying is and we return to dust and but we forget that while we're here you know we, we don't realize that at least not in our everyday right. <laughs> typical waking experience That's but true. but you know we're we're all very, very much a creation of this world and we we arise from it and we return to it like a drop of water rises up out of out of a lake or, or the ocean it's separate from the lake or the ocean while it rises up and it's that separation, that, that feeling of separation that creates that longing to return to, to nature, for example. And when that drop of water falls back down and joins with you know, the water from which it rose, then that is where that sense of completion comes from and where that sense of longing kind of dissolves back into itself and, and leaves you with that sense of peace that you're describing, mm -hmm. that warmth, I think, that you're describing. Speaking of warm desires of the heart and um, this openness, living with an open heart, which is something that seems to be a belief system for me, but who knows it might be, but it's a feeling, it's a sense, it's beyond belief systems. So talk to me about love and the idea of God. What is love to you and what, who, and where is God? Yeah. Oh, wow. That is, <laughs> that is a question that I have asked quite a few times. What, what is God? Where is God? So yes, um, I, I think that the, the, when we really explore what love is, then it gives us a sense of, of what God is. And, 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 that might <laughs> take a minute to to kind mm -hmm. of to to dig into that, but but when you, you you know when you when you are truly when you are truly in love with someone, it's it's not so much an emotion, it's not so much a feeling, and and it's not so much a choice. And and these are words that oftentimes are used to describe what love is. People will say love is a choice to be with someone, or it's an emotion. And and 
in, in English, you know, we only have one word to describe many different kinds of love, but the love for a romantic partner is much different than a love for our child or our, our friend um, or our love for pizza. <laughs> we <laughs> yes. use the word love <laughs> for all of those things yeah. and we mean very different things by it. But real love, when you feel it, when you experience it rather, is is a sense of just wanting, you know, when you're, for example, with the, when when you're with a romantic partner that you are truly in love with, you, it's like your body is in the way of merging with their body. You can't hold them close enough. You can't be close enough to them. You want to merge and blend with them, and you look in look in their eyes, and you feel as though you've always known them. You know, like like you've known them from the beginning of time, even though you just met a short time ago. That's what the experience of love is, and that that experience is is when we really contemplate that and and be with that. That is the some of the best evidence that we have for the the connection that we all share that we can't see that's invisible um, and that we easily forget about. But that that connection is there, and sometimes it takes you know losing yourself in another person to to realize that, and or maybe even to remember that thing that you've always known but you've forgotten that we're all connected and you feel it one on one with that person. But the reality is that we're all that way. We're all connected in that way. And if we were to really intimately bond with with another person, any other person, we would probably experience that same feeling if we allow it. But sometimes that's our brain gets in the way or our culture, our you know differences of personality or you know things like that kind of interfere with that on on a normal basis. But when we when we experience that, that is kind of the best evidence that we have for for what God is, because people often say that God is love, right? Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that love is God? Because that doesn't really make sense. You know, if you consider the word is as a kind of an equal sign, if God is love, then love must be God. And then that doesn't really make a lot of sense. But if we think that that God is that thing that created us all, that we all arose from and the source of everything, then it makes sense that we would experience that feeling of love and that connectedness. And and it's almost like proof or evidence that there must be something that we can refer to and call God, if that makes sense. Mm, yes, very much does. Um, ah, very, very much does to me. The article you sent me, Part of it I have here, it says, love is not an activity, love is not something we do, love is not an action. In essence, love is not a verb, nor it is a choice. Love simply is the recognition of our shared being. Love is the dissolution of the sense of separation between I and others, when in the other. That is the concept of non-duality. At this point, what I wonder is how much of our experience in the human body can arise from that place of non-duality? Yeah, well... Is that something that we just go back and forth? Um, it's possible. I mean, non-duality, I, I, I think I should first say that, that non-duality, kind of like the word love, can mean different things to different people. Mm -hmm. yes. And um, <laughs> there are a lot of, of modern non teachers of non-duality who, who espouse a kind of a, a kind of a bleak message, um, like there is no one here, there's nothing to do, there's no message, there, there's no hope in this message. And not that that's not 
true. I mean, there's there is some truth to that, but I, I think that misses something. And and I think that when we when we really have the experience of non-duality, the true experience, we we can't we can't look at the world in that way, uh, that conceptual way, because it, like I said, you, when you, when you feel that sense, when you experience that sense of connection, then the, the way that you experience the world and other people and the things in it changes. And it is a, it is a paradigm shift and it's not something that most of us uh, take too quickly or easily because we're so used to conceptualizing the world as, you know, a place of time and space that ex- pre-existed before us into which came the world. And then we came into this world uh, almost separate from it. And we're here to kind of explore it and learn about it. But, you know, non-duality doesn't, doesn't see it that way. Non-duality sees, you know, the, the oneness or rather the not-two-ness. And, you know, if you go back to the original Sanskrit translation of everything, you know, and, and the best the best description or the best way that that I've found to kind of to, to contemplate this is to is to use the analogy or the metaphor of a dream. Um, for example, when you fall asleep at night and you have a dream, uh, that dream is created out of nothing more than the, the product of your mind. Your your mind generates an entire world full of objects, um, and it could be streets or books or other people. It, this world is created, and then you enter into that world as a piece of it. But the reality is that it's all made of the same substance, and it's all coming from a you right and and you don't experience that way during the dream but if you if in the waking world if you consider that that it's all the same substance and it's all made of the same stuff and you're just entering into it and viewing it from a first person perspective then you when you wake up and consider that perhaps the same thing is happening in this in this real world that we call real i mean both the dream world and this world are are real but we tend to think of this one as real because it seems more permanent <laughs> and it seems to have less change to it. But the, the difference is, you know, from a spiritual perspective in, or, or from, a, you know, if you're considering what God is, if God is the dreamer of this world or the creator of the substance from which all of this world arises, the only difference between the real world for us and the waking world for us is that, or rather for God, is that when God enters into this world of his own creation, this dream of his own creation, he can be every piece of, or he or she can be every piece of it, right? I enter into my dream world and I can only see it from my own perspective. But in the waking world, when 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 the spiritual reality enters into the waking world that it has created, it, it can um, fracture almost like light through a prism and, and interact with itself from multiple first-person perspectives. So the I that is me and the I that is you is the same I, just entering into the dream and viewing the entire creation from two different perspectives as opposed to the just one perspective that we can achieve when we are dreaming. It's interesting, the more I get to read, reflect, contemplate, and uh, perhaps even shift perspective on what this is, what what we call life is, the more paradoxical it becomes. So it's mm-hmm. this paradox every time, because I love the idea of, um, of healing, of opening the heart and being exposed to another, a different kind of dream of world, which is uh, those desires mm-hmm. of the heart, the thoughts that come from the heart. 
I love that idea. But then when I kind of go a bit deeper and uh, my perspective kind of becomes bigger in a sense of a big picture of everything, then there's no really, there's no healing. There's nothing, as you said before, there's some non-duality teachers say, there's nothing really to seek, nothing to do, really. I mean, there's lots to do, but at the same time, there's nothing to do. So it is a paradox. And I keep kind of arriving at that door. It's always, it might not be a door, it might be the, um, the center that you speak of in some of your articles that's everywhere. There is a center, but it's not centralized, localized. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what a dance. Yeah. <laughs> what an amazing dance. Yeah. And I, and I should say, I, I don't think that I really answered your question about what, you know, what God is or, or, or mm. where God is, because yeah. the, the answer that I was, I was trying to get to was that he, God, he, she, it, whatever pronoun we want to use, is, in, from a non-dual perspective, is everything. It is everywhere. It is everything. You know, it's, it's not what we sometimes think of as being out there and separate, because when when it's out there and separate, that's what creates that sense of longing and that disconnection from nature and that that inability to kind of live from the heart and heal. But when when you realize that um, you know it is both uh, imminent and transcendent and the the of one substance, then all of those things kind of fall into place. God is everything. God is everywhere. God is healing. That is to me, the the kind of uh, the way to, to tie it all up together um, in a way that is so fulfilling and, and and so beautiful. And kind of getting back to an earlier question of yours, the the thing that I think that we are all searching for and, and the purpose of us being here is simply making that realization and, and having that experience. And it may be a brief experience. It may be very brief. Um, some people are fortunate, and there's a handful of people throughout history, the Buddha, Jesus, you know, people of, of, of that caliber, Ramana Maharshi, who who live that reality every minute of every day. Um, but they are few and far between, and the rest of us, you know, we're lucky to get a glimpse of it or to experience it for, for a time or two. But once we've done that, even if it's only been for a few seconds, once we've done that, we can't see the world in the same way. And our whole take, our whole outlook on life and and what this all is changes in a very beautiful way. So what was the inspiration for you to become a psychologist, Mike? I, I had always had an interest in psychology, even even from a very young age. Um, I, when I went to my uh, when I went to college, um, you know, at the normal time, people would go to college in their late teens, early twenties. That's what I studied psychology, intending to go on to graduate school at that time. Um, and it didn't work out for that for me that way. I just got uh, I, I I guess what you call burned out. You know, I, I used up too much gas too quickly in in my studies, and I and I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't fathom going any farther. And so I kind of put that on hold and kind of fell into some other things. And honestly, you know, throughout my entire life, as I've been on sort of a spiritual journey, um, at times I was uh, you know full throttle uh, pursuing you know that type of thing, and at other times I kind of ignored it and went very materialistic, but it, I always came back to that spiritual journey. And it, it was really the spiritual journey um, and, and the dissolution of that sense of longing that we've talked about and that blending feeling that, that's, that said to me, this is something that I, 
I need to share with other people. And it also allowed me to kind of go back to school and study things from from a Western perspective, because I'm interested in, in, in understanding how Western science and Western psychology uh, intersects with Eastern concepts and Eastern spirituality and, and the notion of non-duality. Um, I mean, we're, we're seeing a lot of that in um, science right now with respect to yoga. Yoga is something that's been around for for thousands of years. And um, in the East, you know, people know that that pranayama works, the breathing practices work. The, um, diet is, is super important to mental and physical health, stretching the body, um, all of these things, spiritual practice. Um, and science, Western science is finally catching up to that and, and saying things like, yes, um, the way we breathe really does matter. And uh, we call it diaphragmatic breathing. In yoga, it's called pranayama. You know, Progressive muscle relaxation is something that really helps relieve stress and anxiety, Western science says. And lo and behold, that's something that's been around in yoga for years, yoga nidra, for example. So it's, it's that blending of the two worlds that really interests me. Without, without one getting lost in the other, um, because I think they both have something to offer. But really, like I said, that, that, that spiritual journey and, and kind of everything seeming to fall into place um, led me to the point where I felt like I needed to make a, a little bit of a change in my life and, and maybe get back on that path that I wanted to be on from an early age and, and um, do something meaningful, you know, hopefully, mm. hopefully make a difference. Yeah, and you are. Yeah, very inspiring, though, to me. <laughs> yeah, I love reading what you write and how you write it. It's just beautiful using that word again. I do have another question for you. I mean, I have lots of questions, too many. The work you do, there's a, a therapy that it's called IFS therapy, internal family systems. Right? Mm -hmm. Internal family systems, yes. On your website, you have a phrase that caught my attention. You say, you are not talking to yourself. Your internal family is. <laughs> that made me smile too, yeah, right? Because that makes <laughs> sense. <laughs> so mm -hmm, talk to mm -hmm. me for a moment about that, the method and um, what's going on with our inner conversations. <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, well, you know, that, that's, a, that's a great thing to talk about after we, what we just, where we just were because um, that's a great example of blending of, of Eastern and Western concepts. Um, internal family systems is a... A method of therapy that was founded by Richard Schwartz, and he based his work on a lot of early pioneers uh, that came before him. Um, but basically, it's it's a it's a, a synthesis of three paradigms. Um, the first one being the paradigm of multiplicity, and multiplicity means that um, you know we we tend to think of ourselves as a single solitary whole unit, um, thinking and feeling and, and doing our own thing and making our own decisions. Um, multiplicity says that maybe that's not so true. And, and psychology backs this up because, you know, modern research suggests that, you know, no matter how, how deeply we look into the brain, we cannot find a center, you know, a central command station. There, we cannot find a part of the brain that is the self, the, the part that's in charge. Um, and multiplicity says that, that. Well, that's really because we're there is we are not a unitary thing. We we are almost a collection of what what seems like sub personalities or or parts parts of the language that most people use. Um, and most of us have at one time or another said, you know, a part of me feels this way, but mm -hmm, yeah, another part of me true. feels that way. 
you know, a part of me wants to open the refrigerator and eat that <laughs> tub of ice cream to make myself feel better. The other part of me says, no, that's not a good idea, right? <laughs> so and it's, that conflict is there, and that conflict arises from these different parts of our personality, these different sub-personalities, and, and that's kind of what multiplicity is, is getting at. Um, the second paradigm is systems theory, um, which is um, a, a theory that looks at how people like to think that they're individuals in a world and acting independently. And the reality is that we are all part of a system. You know, if, for example, if I'm in, in a household with my family, my actions affect my family. My family's actions affect me. None of us are, are working independently here. We're all part of a system. And then you take that system and you place it in the community. And that community is interacting with, with the family and the family with the community and so on, on up the scale. That is kind of, in a real brief nutshell, what systems theory is. Um, and, and IFS applies systems theory to the mind and says that these little parts, these little sub-personalities, this multiplicity that's going on is acting like a system. So this part of me that wants the ice cream is interacting with the part of me that doesn't want it. Um, and and it's, it's creating conflict. It's all part of a greater system. And then the third paradigm is the notion of self, which comes out of the Eastern traditions, you know, the Buddhist traditions, the Hindu traditions. There is a central core to us, which is which we sometimes refer to as ourself or, or the self with a capital S. And this self is what's observing and is aware of all of these interactions of all these other parts. But we sometimes feel like we sometimes get blended with these other parts. So we think that the part of us that wants the ice cream is is us. And then we feel bad and we don't like ourselves or we hate ourselves. And 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 the reality is we need to take a step back and realize that what we're, the thing inside of us all that observes this, that sees this, that recognizes all of these different parts, all of these different systems that are going on, that is the real us. That is the real us. And if we can, we can unblend from these other parts that are causing conflict, then we can restore them to a system, uh, to a balance and a harmony that we can then project out into the, well, obviously it resolves itself in some peace inwardly for us, which we can then project out into, you know, our, our family, our community and so forth. So I'm not sure what your original question was, but that's my answer to <laughs> where we went. <laughs> when you talk about the self, capital S, that gives the impression that there is someone who is the boss, who is kind of directing. You said that's the observer. It doesn't do anything, right, Mike? It just observes. But how does it influence the actions and the thoughts of the person, of the human being? Well, I, I would say that the I, I know it sounds kind of contradictory to say that there is no centralized mm -hmm. command center, there is no self, and then turn around and say that the self is the core of all of us. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's it's that piece that is kind of that's the piece that is connected to the world and to nature. That's that that's it's almost like the channel from which all of the substance of the world arises and and materializes. That that center maybe center is a better word or or that element is is that which through everything flows and and so when you know in non-duality when we say we're there is no doer for example there's no one here nothing to do that's kind of what it's talking about um because there really is there really is no no one here no doer but it doesn't feel like that to us because you know there's something that observes there's something that that is aware of everything that's going on and that's 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 what the self is it's it's almost like a knowing it's almost like um an observer and it's that observer you know going back to 
the, the metaphor of the dream where the spirit enters into the dream and then plays every role. And that's kind of, that's kind of what, uh, where the language of traditional non-dual teachers blends with what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is a paradox, but in that sense, mm-hmm. it makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a paradox as, as we, as we flip from looking at it from one perspective to the other, it, it's a paradox. Um, and it's allowing the paradox to be what it is. That is kind of like the, the observer of, of the whole picture kind of being at peace with what's happening. Ah, yeah. So it's already at peace. I mean, it's there. It's not really um, connected with anything that we are doing or saying or thinking. It seems to me like it cannot really influence directly. But when the parts that you speak of, one part, realize that there is something here they observes, <laughs> then it's almost like the observer has been seen and that everything changes, and then it kind of illuminates the conditioned parts of us, the mind and the body. Mm-hmm. That's what it feels like. Yeah. And, it, and it's also the healing part. It's mm. also the healing part, yeah, you know, yeah. that that's, yeah. that's, and I shouldn't say the word part because it's not a part. It's, it's the core, it's the center, it's the self, but healing comes from, it is naturally healing. You know, that's part of the, the theory of, of the psychotherapy. It's, it's a naturally healing element of, of our being and the parts, for example, that are in conflict with each other, um, when they interact with the self or when they see it, turn and see the self, like you said, the, the self's healing qualities can, can, can calm them, can heal them, can, can restore the system to a, a place of balance and harmony. But it's when, it's when that self gets blended or mixed up or lost or, or identifies itself with a part of us as opposed to, as opposed to serving its rightful role as kind of like the, the, the center of the system around which the parts orbit, um, that things get a little confused. Yes, another billion times, a trillion <laughs> to that <laughs> illumination from the self, what we call self with capital S. I love the blog post, as I mentioned off record, that you have written. The title itself caught my attention. It says, peace common with a side of anger. So is that something that in a way summarizes as well this um, idea of the self touching and being seen by parts who are part of us and then life seems to be much more peaceful and clear, but then there's still like a side of uh, a dark side to it <laughs> that never goes away? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, kind of. I, I don't know. What, what I heard you just say sounds a little bit dark, like you said. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I, I, from my personal experience, you know, I've I've struggled with anger issues on and off uh, throughout my life, and I feel like I've come a long way in 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 understanding that process. And and I don't want to say managing because it, it doesn't go far enough for me. I, I want to say I want to say, I want to resolve that, so it's no longer something that needs to be managed. But when I when I look closely at at the anger that rises in myself, what I find is that that anger comes up and it looks for a source. It looks it looks for something to blame. It looks for something to point its finger at and said, I'm angry because you did this or you said that or because this happened. So that feeling rises up and, and it does that automatically. And we, for example, when talking about blending, we become confused. We become blended with that feeling of anger and we mistake that feeling of anger for ourselves. And we get lost in the blame that it wants to place on others for the way 
we're being treated. And if we allow if we allow that to, to fuel us, then that's where anger gets its energy. And that's where anger becomes stronger. And if in that moment that anger arises, and this is not an easy thing to do, but it is doable. If when that anger arises, we can recognize that anger, that part of us that's rising up in anger. If we can recognize it and, and for what it is and allow it to be there without letting it place its blame, but just feeling it, just experiencing it, just turning towards it and allowing it to be there, then what happens is it has nothing to fuel it. It has nothing to power it. And then it just, it dissolves. It it rises up for a purpose. It's there to to defend us and to help us from a wrong that it perceives. And if we can just acknowledge it and let it do that, if we can just let it do its do its job without blending with it and giving it the fuel that drives it, then then we can we can experience that anger, we can feel it, and we we may be furious, we can feel it, but that anger exists within something and that something that exists within is 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 our our core self of of peace. And when that anger is is allowed to express itself and then and then fall away, then what we're left with is that sense of peace. And it's really remarkable to be, to experience that. What arises? That's interesting. You talk about the feeling of anger. There are so many feelings that we can call dark or coming from the parts, mm-hmm. the separated self, the separated mm-hmm. wholeness, as I call it. For me, it has been more physical, like when I am in the presence of some people, then my body just reacts in a very negative way. The stomach, Mm -hmm. and I have a headache. And then from the physical sensations, uncomfortable sensations, then thoughts arise as blaming the people that I'm around, Mm -hmm. like it's coming from them, they are causing this. So it's not really anger, but it's uh, the acknowledgement that the body sensing something. And it's not Mm -hmm. comfortable in certain situations with certain people. I'm still investigating what that is. And I, of course, I still do. I go back to the the situation just to make sure I'm not pushing away anything. But the pain still persists, headaches and and my stomach aches and not feeling comfortable. So I wonder what that is. I'm still working on it. Yeah. Well, it, it sounds like you have, like, like you're very in touch with your body. Um, and some people aren't, aren't as in touch as you are. Um, many people spend most of their day and even most of their life with most of their conscious energy trapped in their, in their, in their head, you know, because their mind is the primary thing that is consuming, you know, most of the gas mm, <laughs> in <yeah>. the vehicle. <laughs> and they're spending yeah. time in their mind, they're thinking, they're intellectualizing, and they're, they're not in touch with their body. And, and you, as someone who does what you do, um, are very much more in touch with your body and your your sort of conscious energy is spread throughout your being as opposed to being uh, gathered in in your in your mind and your intellect. Not that you don't have energy up there, you do, but <laughs> it's so. also <laughs> shared with other other important parts of your <laughs> yes. being, like your body. Yeah. And and uh-huh. as a result, you're able to to sense these signals that some some other people aren't so sensitive to um, that are arising. With with a purpose, and we like we we tend to put a negative label on them. You know, if if they're pleasant, we we label them good. If they're unpleasant, then we label them bad. But the truth is, there's neither good nor bad when it comes to feelings 
um, that we feel in the body. They all serve a purpose. They all are they all are well intended. And this goes back to internal family systems theory. All of the parts of us have a good intention. They want the best for us. They're trying to like for example in, in what you're talking about they're trying to alert us to something that could be could be a danger you know could be a risk and and it's mm-hmm. a way of saying hey um look out and it's it's right. a, it's a way of saying it that is very loud <laughs> and uh <laughs> kind of kind of uncomfortable at times and and that kind of that's the trade-off for being for being more well-rounded and more uh, more balanced being if you understand what oh, I'm saying. Oh, wow. Yes. Uh, that's very helpful. So those feelings, they carry a purpose. They're trying to tell me something. And I keep doing the same thing because they are family members that I can't really push away and say no and mm-hmm. stay away from them. And I'm trying to kind of, um, in a gentle way, uncode, like to understand what is the danger here. Not trying to get to know the future because that doesn't make sense to me <laughs> to try to decipher the future, to know what's going to happen then. But I know something's happening here. I love the way you say purpose that he has. And that came to me intuitively, that it, there is a reason. And I don't know what to do because I never really ran from danger in a way because it always had a a powerful lesson to teach me every time throughout my life. So I never ran from anything that seemed even to be dangerous. And then I learned a powerful message, mm-hmm. always did. Mm-hmm. Do you want to make a comment about that? Well, I was going to say maybe danger isn't the right word, you yeah, know. Right. Um, but like you said, they, all of these feelings that rise up in us, you know, uh, whether they're, they're, they're love or joy or, or um, anger or jealousy or resentment or thoughts, you know, um, thoughts that arise into our head without us necessarily thinking them. You know, this happens to us, but sometimes we don't realize it. We think we're the thinker of our thoughts, but oftentimes our thoughts are just bubbling up. And we're recognizing that they're there. Uh, but all, all of these thoughts and all of these feelings arise from these different parts of us, these different sub-personalities. And like I said, they're all well-intended. They all are trying to do their job for us as best they can. And um, even when it doesn't seem pleasant or or there's conflict between one or more parts, just understanding that they're all well-intended and they're all wanting the best for, for us, but they have different visions of what that looks like. We can we if we can step back and allow them to say their piece, you know, almost like it's a democracy and they can voice their opinion and then let the decision be made, then then the self is free to be the the leader of that system and and like I said, restore it to balance and harmony so that you don't experience that that kind of upset. Mm, yeah, that's what I wonder if this will ever go away. It hasn't in about three years. So that's an interesting Idea. I love this. So it might be coming from a part of me that rejects something that is perceiving as negative, as bad, as judging. It's a part of me that might be judging the situation or the person in front mm-hmm. of me. That might be yes. it, right? And then I, what I do uh, with my whole being, just try to be present as much as I can and just be open to the judgment even of that part and then what's the love that I can perceive too coming from other parts to that person. So it's kind of a, like I said before, the only word I can use is a dance. It's this amazing dance, kind of trying to balance, right, these parts. Yeah. And, you know, I think another good word to maybe consider is acceptance. Mm, And I I think that's kind of 
a, a part of what you're talking about is, is the notion of acceptance. And a lot of times we think that acceptance is something that we have to do and we, we wonder how to do it. And sometimes we even ask the question, how do I accept this? I mean, I, I want to be okay with this. I don't know how to do that. And acceptance is not something that is a doing. It's not something that we do. It's it's actually the absence of action. Acceptance is the dropping of resistance to the way the situation happens to be right now. And if we can just allow the situation to be what it is, there may be judgment arising, but it's not from us. There may be pleasure arising, but even that's not from us. That's something that the self is observing. And allowing everything to happen without resisting it, without fighting it, is what acceptance is, is all about. It's the absence of action or the absence of resistance. Mm. Oh, wow. I love that. And that sounds like the, if we have one definition of love, being open to what is, right? What's happening now exactly the way it, that mm -hmm. it is happening. That sounds like love to me very much. Yes. Ah, I yes. love that. I have to use the same word. <laughs> That's beautiful. Okay, Mike, we're almost at the end. I love also something that I found on your website. You said, here is not a place in space, and now it's not a moment in time. That's another conversation we could have, but I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, that, that's 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 another <laughs> thirty minute conversation oh, for right sure. there. <laughs> for sure, I love that. And so, my last question is: What are three things you wish everyone to experience with the body, mind, and soul before they lose the body, before they die? Wow, what are three things I wish everyone to experience? Well, that if if there are people who haven't yet had the opportunity to experience that type of love that we talked about early on in the conversation, that would be number one. I would like everyone to experience that, the, the, I would like them to have the experience that they are not their thoughts and they are not their emotions. They are the observers of those things. And, and I think maybe those two things might be enough. <laughs> There's probably a third one that I could think of if I had more time. But, but I, I think understanding mm. that, you know, the thoughts that we think aren't necessarily who we are or even our own thoughts sometimes and, and combining that with that, that feeling of love, that, that true connection, um, that blending, that, that alone is, is a very spiritual experience. Yes. I love what you do, how you express these profound messages. They are not easy to communicate. So thank you for They're doing not. a beautiful really job not. at it. <laughs> um, thank you for our conversation, your presence here today, Mike. And before we say goodbye, where can we find more information about you, what you do, your services, products, and future projects? Oh, um, well, I have, uh, I, I maintain two websites. Um, one of them you, you've noted um, some articles from. It's called Discovering Non-Duality. DiscoveringNonduality.com is the website. And that is for people who are very interested in, in obviously, the concept of non-duality from a spiritual perspective. In, in, in a lot of non-dual teachers or uh, proponents don't incorporate, you know, a, a spiritual component or, a, or and don't reference the word God too much, which I do. So it makes it a little bit different and um, yeah. maybe niche, <laughs> yeah. but uh, that would be place number one. And then place number two um, would be my, my website that I maintain for psychotherapy purposes, which is Michael dmcveigh.com. Wonderful. I'll have those links on a podcast profile too in written, clickable form. Thank you so much again for everything that could be felt and sensed. Thank you. Everything that could be Thank heard you. and Thank also you. sensed. 
Bye for now, Mike. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Michael McVeigh and his work, please visit michaeldmcveigh.com and discoveringnonduality.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.